Monitor Monday is recorded before a live online audience. It's morning in America. It's Monitor Monday. For rural hospitals and small town clinics, big city health systems, and healthcare professionals, Monday means Monitor Monday. And Monday means gearing up for another week of audits by the government and health plans. Here now with the latest regulatory and audit news is the publisher of Rack Monitor and the host of Monitor Monday, Chuck Buck. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to Monitor Monday. Today, Monday, March 16th, marks the first Monday that as a nation we're living under a new normal, the national health emergency declared by President Trump on Friday. Other announcements by the government and the administration over the weekend have rattled the nation into hunkering down for the long haul. We have much news to report on this developing story. Former CMS official Matthew Albright reports on sweeping legislation by the House in response to the coronavirus outbreak. Dennis Jones is standing by in New York to report on what that state is doing to remove testing barriers to the virus. Healthcare attorney David Glazer reports on legal risky business when it comes to CMS waivers in the wake of the virus. In other news this morning, how do you convert Medicare patients from inpatient to outpatient status compliantly? Mary Beth Pace is standing by with that story. Alan Fink Sandwick has the latest news concerning the social determinants for health and making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Monday Rounds is sponsored by R1RCM. Here now making his Monday Rounds is Dr. Ronald Hirsch. Good morning, all. Obviously, lots of COVID-19 news today. Um, Watch your email for my article later today from Rack Monitor eNews. First, the emergency declaration means that patients no longer need a three-day inpatient stay to to access the Part A skilled nursing facility benefit. They can go from the ED, from observation, from any inpatient stay, or even directly from home, as long as they have a skilled need. Now, while this sounds good, I suspect that nursing homes are going to be careful about this with this epidemic, or pandemic, excuse me. Um, The outbreak in the nursing home in Seattle, um, which has killed almost 30 residents, is um, certain to have every nursing home on edge about who they will accept. Um, If you're not yet overwhelmed with patients, it may be a good time to talk to your SNFs and plan for the use of this waiver if you need it. Um, I've also asked CMS to temporarily waive enforcement of the discharge planning rules related to offering full patient choice and quality data to allow a more expedited transfer of patients. Um, Of course, even if that's waived, patients will still need to consent to transfer and the SNF must be able to meet their medical needs. Also, the 100-day limit on Part A coverage is waived. Um, In any of these situations, the SNF should report condition code DR on their claim in order to get paid. I've also inquired with CMS about a waiver of the PASAR requirements, but although this is a federal requirement, it's regulated on the state level, so it is still required. Now, critical access hospitals are permitted to waive their 25-patient and 96-hour average length of stay limits. I suspect that as things get worse, we may see the need to transfer non-critically ill patients from hospitals to these critical access hospitals for ongoing care. Once again, the DR condition code should be placed on the claim. Now, if your hospital has an excluded distinct part unit, such as inpatient psych, inpatient rehab, or a transitional care unit, those beds can be used as acute care beds and billed as such if they're needed. 
In this case, the DR code is not necessary, but the record should indicate that the patient is receiving acute care. Home health agencies and DME suppliers have been given flexibility. Home health agencies may complete an abbreviated assessment on admission of the patient, and DME suppliers may provide replacement equipment without a new face-to-face -face visit or a physician order. Um, CMS has also stated that the appeals deadlines will be waived for appeals by both beneficiaries and providers. Finally, on by behalf of all of you, as with the discharge planning rules, I've asked CMS to waive the April 1st deadline for use of the new important message and detailed notice of discharge. Now is not the time to require more face-to-face -face interaction with patients by non-essential personnel and to divert IT resources. I don't know if they'll agree, but I think every hospital has to make the decision that's right for their circumstances. Personally, I would not fault any facility that puts that on the back burner and instead concentrates on saving lives. Thanks, Chuck. Thank you, Dr. Hirsch. That was the Vice President of R1 RCM, Ronald Hirsch. Dr. Hirsch was making his Monday rounds here on Monitor Monday. And now with an update on how the state of New York is responding to the coronavirus outbreak, here is Dennis Jones. Good morning, Dennis. Good morning, Chuck, and thanks. Um, I wish I was here under better circumstances, uh, but these are difficult times in uh, New York State and across the United States. Uh, as of Sunday, New York State had more patients identified with COVID-19 than anywhere else in the United States. And this is not a distinction that anyone here had hoped for. It was announced on Sunday that 729 COVID-19 cases had been confirmed, and that was an increase of 69 cases uh, from Saturday. I'm sure those numbers have changed this morning. I'm on the hospital website and on some news websites. I, I don't see updated numbers at this point, um, although three patients have died in New York so far. Uh, these numbers are being updated as we speak. New York's Governor Andrew Cuomo has watched world events closely, particularly in Italy, Spain, and China, and the impact that the COVID virus has had on the healthcare system in those countries. He is calling on the federal government to mobilize the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers to convert existing state-owned facilities like the State University of New York dormitories into medical facilities. It's true that there are approximately 3,000 ICU beds uh, at hospitals in the state, However, these beds are already 80% filled. That means there are only 600 available ICU beds in this state at any given time. If New York's clinical capacity is not increased immediately, Cuomo predicts that New York's hospitals will soon be overwhelmed by an oncoming wave of coronavirus patients. Faced with this dire reality, Governor Cuomo last week issued an executive order effective through April 11th that suspends certain laws and regulations to allow for expansion of services and temporary facilities for hospitals and other health and human services providers. This will allow hospitals to make temporary changes to buildings, bed capacities, and services provided upon approval of the Commissioner of Health in response to a surge in patient census. It will allow construction applications for temporary hospital locations and extensions to be approved by the Commissioner of Health. Providers can establish temporary hospital locations and extensions without following the standard approval process and take such, method, such further measures as may be necessary to expedite departmental review for approval. Clinical laboratories may operate temporary collecting stations. You've seen them pop up. We've seen the drive-through uh, collecting stations for specimens um, from people suffering from COVID-19 virus or suspecting that they might be infected. 
It will uh, allow screening to be conducted by telephone and will permit other types of practitioners to develop services within their scopes of practice. New York State will waive or revise eligibility criteria, documentation requirements, or premium contributions and modify covered health care services. Further, any large gatherings or events from, uh, from which attendance is anticipated to be in uh, excess of 500 people uh, has been canceled and postponed for a minimum of 35, I'm sorry, 30 days. The CDC this morning issued guidance that groups of over 50 individuals should be prohibited. All schools in New York City have been, and many surrounding counties have been closed. Uh, the New York uh, Department of Financial Services announced the removal of barriers to testing and treatment for COVID-19 in a letter uh, issued March 3rd. The letter states that insurers should not use pre-authorization requirements as a barrier to accessing COVID-19 treatments and should be prepared to expedite utilization review appeal processes for services related to COVID-19. Hospitals are awaiting the release of emergency Department of Financial Services regulations prohibiting health insurers from imposing cost sharing um, on in-network provider office visits, urgent care visits, or emergency room visits when the purpose of the visit is testing or treatment of COVID-19. It's unclear if cost sharing prohibitions include deductibles. Uh, The Hospital Association of New York State, Haney's, is advocating that cost-sharing prohibitions do include all copays, deductibles, and other out-of-pocket costs. In states like New York, where the governor has declared an emergency, Medicare Advantage plans must cover services at out-of-network providers at the in-network cost-sharing rate and waive gatekeeper referral requirements. New York's Medicaid program will cover services including testing for COVID-19 and for physician, clinic, and emergency visits without copays for patients when the purpose of the visit is testing or treatment of COVID-19. New York State Medicaid will add HICPIC codes as they become available. Across the Hudson River in New Jersey, the New Jersey Hospital Association has now announced a restricted visitors policy for all New Jersey hospitals, nursing homes, and other post-acute care facilities. No hospital visitors will be allowed until further notice. Limited exceptions include patients in hospice or end-of-life care, maternity patients, maternity patients who are allowed one visitor or support person, uh, one visitor support person is allowed for pediatric patients, and one visitor support person is allowed for an individual undergoing same-day surgery or an ambulatory procedure, although I understand that all elective surgeries are being canceled. Visitors who meet these exceptions will be screened for symptoms before being allowed to visit. In addition, hospitals and other healthcare providers in coronavirus hotspots are being forced to fast-track work-from-home strategies for their workforce. Chuck, these are unique times that we are dealing with. Updates on the coronavirus, its spread, and its impact seem to come faster than we can digest them. We will look for specifics to flesh out the general policies and regulations that have been announced, and we'll have to keep up with local, state, and national events as best as we can until new effective treatments and a vaccine are developed. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Dennis, very much. That was Dennis Jones reporting live from New York. Dennis is the Director of Patient Financial Services for Montefiore Nyack Hospital in Nyack, New York. And coming up at about 12 and a half minutes after the hour, you're going to hear from David Glazer, Alan Fink-Samnick, Matthew Albright, and Mary Beth Pace. This is Monday. It's March 16th, and you're listening to Monitor Monday. Stand by. As a subscriber to Rack Monitor, you know about the quality and integrity of the information and education we provide. 
That information from our team of top healthcare experts has no doubt helped you avoid regulatory and compliance risks. What you may not know is that by subscribing to the new Rack Monitor Compliance Webcast Portal, you'll have access to all Rack Monitor regulatory and compliance webcasts. You'll learn from nationally recognized experts like Dr. Ronald Hirsch, Nicole Emanuel, Ellen Fink-Samnick, David Glazer, and many more. Most importantly, you'll get access to all the Rack Monitor Compliance webcasts at just a fraction of the cost. But don't take it from us. Try it for yourself. Sign up today for a free three-day trial at the Rack University Bookstore. Here now with the Monitor Monday Risky Business Report is healthcare attorney David Glazer. Good morning, David. What could be risky this morning with the CMS guidance for the coronavirus? I spent much of my Saturday morning trying to decipher exactly what rules CMS had waived in response to the COVID-19 outbreak. And I'll tell you, it was humbling. Um, I don't recommend it unless you want to sort through lots of references to paragraph 2B1 and subclauses 1 through 9 of paragraph 4C2. Before I go through some of the key exceptions that were issued, I want to reemphasize a point I made last week. Sometimes in life, you need to make a decision that may involve breaking a rule. If you're standing at a beach with a no swimming sign and you see someone drowning, you have to decide whether you would rather face consequences of diving in or living with your choice not to. There will be some tough decisions to make in the next few weeks, and while it's good to know the law, my advice is to focus more on saving lives. Two examples. The Coronavirus Preparedness and Response Act allows HHS to waive telehealth requirements and allow coverage for certain phone services, but to qualify, the telephone must have audio and visual capability. For most people, that won't be an issue, but some senior citizens, the most vulnerable population here, use phones without video capability. The law leaves you three options. Do the service for free, overlook the video requirement, or make the patient come to your facility. I would immediately discount the third option. You may choose to do the service for free, but I don't think it's entirely crazy to bill for a telehealth service for a call involving an analog phone and deal with the consequences should they arise. Another example, MTALA is not suspended. So if a patient presents with a suspected MI, tests suggest it isn't, but we would normally keep the patient for observation, what do you do? I would be direct. Tell her, I don't think you're having a heart attack. Normally, I'd keep you for a few hours to check. But if I do that right now, it increases the risk of exposing you to the virus. I think it's safer to send you home than to keep you here. Now, if the patient is having an MI, might you be sued? Of course. But your defense is real. And I don't think that an EMTALA case is a likely result in this situation. Possible, but sometimes you've got to take risks. This is an unusual situation, and we're all going to need to make snap judgments. Use common sense as the chief lodestone. So, as, so what rules did CMS suspend? Ron mentioned critical access hospitals can now have more than 25 beds, and the requirement to limit stays to 96 hours is completely waived. Medicare patients can have coverage for a sniff visit without a three-day hospitalization. And once in the nursing home, patients aren't required to have minimum data set assessments. Excluded distinct part units of hospitals can be used to treat acute care patients. If existing DME is lost and destroyed, or, or destroyed, CMS is waiving the face-to-face -face requirement as well as the need for a new physician order and medical necessity documentation. But for some reason, this is another limited waiver. It only applies to the replacement of DME, not the ordering of new. So here's another example of where you may need to take a risk. Medicare is temporarily waiving the restriction that professionals licensed in the state, or I'm sorry, license, be licensed in the state where the service is provided. 
Now, the Medicare waiver doesn't help with any state licensing board, but that's a risk I would readily accept. I don't think a licensing board is going to go after a licensed professional for helping to cope with this crisis. CMS is postponing all revalidation and waiving site checks and criminal background checks for new provider enrollment. For more details on other exceptions, you can look at the links under the Panelists Resources tab. Note that Medicare waivers don't automatically apply in any other context. The fact that Medicare is now going to allow certain telehealth services doesn't mean private insurers will. You can consider asking your big insurers for flexibility, or you could simply notify them of your plans and tell them you intend to offer telehealth services unless they object and see how things play out. Chuck, Christopher Cross, and I know that it gets rough sometimes, but you can give it one more try because it's all right, and I think we're going to make it. I sure hope so. Thanks, David. That was David Glazer. David is a shareholder of the law firm of Fredrickson and Byron in downtown Minneapolis. Here now with the very latest news on the social determinants of health is Alan Fink-Samnick. Alan also has a Monitor Monday listener survey. And good morning, Alan. What's the latest news concerning the social determinants of health? Good morning, Chuck, and good Monday, all. So while the world is hyper-focused on how best to address the coronavirus, the industry continues to juggle the impact of the social determinants. There is no doubt that the underserved will continue to be underserved, and potentially more than before. This story is a moving target and will continue to evolve, so stay tuned for details as they are available. In the meantime, the rest of our healthcare world continues to rotate. So to that end, Advest Health recently asked 200 healthcare experts eight questions to gain perspective about how healthcare systems and organizations are managing the determinants. Number one, which organization is best positioned to address social determinants and healthcare disparity issues across communities? Hands down, Hospitals and related healthcare systems got the nod here at 38%, with government and social service organizations in a close race for second at 28%, and just shy of 28% respectively, 27.75% to be exact. What action would most help organizations best address the social determinants? 39% felt public policy changes and poverty supports were the number one ammunition to yield change, with almost another 38% seeking direct reimbursement for the determinants. Anyone at CMS listening? What issues stand in the way of implementing programs and services to address the determinants? This question's response will be of no surprise to our Monitor Monday audience. Over 85% faulted little to no reimbursement. 63% blamed the inability to prove return on investment, and 62% felt that the determinants were, wait for it, outside the scope of their organization. I wonder if they're also thinking that the coronavirus is outside the scope of their organization. Yes, I really did say that. Does your organization screen for the social determinants was number four. Almost 57% gave an affirmative yes to this quote. Another 24% said no. And the remainder replied to the third option. I don't know. Number five, 
Does your organization have a structured program to address the determinants? It remains surprising to see that despite the times and industry emphasis, only 30% admitted yes, though close to another 28% had programs in progress. Many of these we expect will change over the next one to two months. How are these programs funded? 57% were self-funded via decremental budgets and close to 44% from outside grants. What disparities do the programs address? Well, of course, socioeconomic status, disability, and homelessness top the list at 84%, 61%, and 56% respectively. Finally, what departments or persons plan organizational efforts toward the determinants? 71% put this power in the hands of the administrator, though 38% had this fall to whoever held the responsibility of the organization for mission or philanthropy efforts. Reviewing new reports on the social determinants has much in common with seeking best guidance on public health emergencies. You obtain the facts from established entities, stay proactive versus reactive about solutions and strategies, then develop sound action plans to move forward. This latest report reinforces the need for sound reimbursement, organizational commitment to assess and identify needy populations, plus development of sustainable initiatives through community partnerships. This week's Monitor Monday listener survey, sponsored by the American College of Physician Advisors, provides our unique twist to reframe one of the ADVIS questions. What issue most stands in the way of implementing programs and services to address the social determinants at your organization? A, lack of reimbursement. B, inability to prove return on investment for the effort. C, addressing them as viewed as outside the organizational scope. D, there are other priorities for the organization. We'll check back at the end of the broadcast. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Ellen, very much. That was consultant and author Alan Fink-Sandnick. And as Ellen said, we're going to have the results of the Monitor Money listener survey later in this broadcast. Now's the time for the Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright. The Monitor Monday Legislative Update with Matthew Albright is sponsored by Zellis. Zellis is a market-leading provider of claims, cost, and payment optimization solutions to price, pay, and explain healthcare claims. Here now is Matthew Albright. The big push from both the states and Congress last week was to remove any economic obstacles for people to get tested for COVID-19. State and federal governments want to make sure that people don't hesitate from getting tested and from self-quarantining if they have to. At this point, it looks pretty certain that testing for the virus will not require any co-pays, co-insurance, or any other cost sharing by any individual, whether that person is insured or not. And that is due to a bill that came out of the U.S. House of Representatives just this past Saturday with strong bipartisan support. And as you remember, although it feels like a lifetime, just a week and a half ago, Congress and the president passed their first coronavirus bill, a funding package that was aimed mostly at getting a vaccine for the virus. In contrast, the bill passed out of the House this past Saturday is directed at some of the economic repercussions of the virus on patients and workers. The bill still has to go through the Senate and be signed by the president, but Trump did tweet his support for the bill on Friday, So it is expected to be made law probably as early as midweek this week. The bill called the Families First Coronavirus Response Act addresses a number of areas. First, 
As we said, the bill waives all costs for any individual that gets tested for the virus. And, and to respond to a question that Dennis brought up earlier in the program, that includes even if you haven't met your deductibles, all costs are waived. The bill also prohibits any payer from requiring prior authorization for getting tested. Now, for people who are infected or quarantined or, or whose places of work or children's school has been closed, the bill requires businesses to offer paid sick leave and up to three months of paid family and medical leave. Now, this requirement only applies to businesses with fewer than 500 employees. That applicability to just medium-sized businesses is likely to remain in place as the bill goes through the Senate and the President because Republicans wanted to keep some kind of cap on that paid leave. The cost won't fall on businesses, however, as the government will provide tax credits to pay for this. The bill also provides funds for the administration of state unemployment offices, and it bolsters food assistance programs with an infusion of funds. You, you may have heard that the administration was going ahead with applying work requirements to the food stamp program. Now, this bill would halt that plan. The House bill complements an incredible amount of state government activity we saw last week. Nearly 30 states came out with either requirements or strongly worded requests for insurers with regard to some of the billing and payment of coronavirus-related issues. We've got a table in the web room that lists these states and the emergency rules they passed. Go to the tab in the web room called Panelist Resources for that table. Ten states announced strict requirements on insurers, while another 19 states had strongly worded, let's call them requests, of insurers. Among all those states, commonalities included waiving any cost sharing for testing, like the House bill, requiring insurers to waive prior authorization for testing, and prohibiting restrictive utilization review management. There are also telehealth provisions and requirements that insurers allow prescription refills before scheduled refill dates so that people wouldn't have to go to a pharmacy when they should be practicing good social distancing. Take a look at that table we have up in panelist resources and see where your state landed. Up next, legislatively, we're likely to see a wave of social distancing mandates and recommendations coming out. This past weekend, as, as most of you know, Illinois, Ohio, Washington State, Boston, Massachusetts, New York City, they've all declared emergency orders that either severely restricts restaurants and bars or shuts them down completely. And like Dennis mentioned, last night, the CDC strongly recommended canceling or postponing events of 50 or more people across the country. More to come, but at both the state and federal level, there's a lot of good bipartisan work being done. So that's good to see, Chuck. Back to you. Thanks, Matthew, very much. That was former CMS official Matthew Albright. Matthew was a chief legislative affairs officer for Zealous. Why is converting Medicare patients from inpatient to outpatient status a tricky compliance issue? Reporting that story in just 60 seconds will be Mary Beth Pace. This is Monitor Monday Standby. January 1st, 2021 seems far away, but given the magnitude of changes coming for how office evaluation and management visits will be documented and coded, you can't afford to wait to prepare. It's time to get a head start, and the best place for that is with the 2020 Evaluation and Management Essentials Handbook from MedLearn Publishing. This handbook will keep you in compliance with current guidelines, and although the rules have yet to change, a new chapter is now available to ensure you understand the changes with practical tips and guidance to ease the transition when 2021 arrives. 
The good news is the 2020 Evaluation and Management Essentials Handbook is now online at shop.medlearn.com. As we mentioned at the top of the broadcast, converting Medicare patients from inpatient outpatient status is a tricky compliance issue. To explain more, here is Mary Beth Pace. Thank you, Chuck. How sure are you that your teams are processing the proper billing level of care for your Medicare beneficiaries? Remember, it is our responsibility to use their benefits correctly. They rely on us to advocate for them. Let's talk about what that should look like. So you're working in a hospital where the ED does the best job they can do on determining who should be inpatient or outpatient and who should be who we should use outpatient observation level on. Your surgery area also does the best job they can do on determining who should be inpatient or outpatient, right? Fact of the matter is, CMS reminds us that the billing level of care should be assigned by the physician order. The UB04 reflects that order. How compliant is your organization? Do you have a very complicated process that takes people bird dogging every step of the way? If you are like most places, then the answer is yes. We recently went to a new EMR, and the orders team assured us that this would be a thing of the past once we implemented. Guess what? It is not and will not be. While there is more insight into the process, our process at sometimes remains broken. We've had some scenarios come up that make us scratch our heads. I wonder if any of these resonate with your place of business. First and foremost, remember we are the advocates for our elder population. They are relying on us, as I had said. This also means discharging to the clinically appropriate least restrictive environment, but that's for another Monitor Monday. Let's start with inpatient-only procedures. A Medicare patient comes to the hospital for a procedure that is on the inpatient-only list. Boarding slip says inpatient, registration is for inpatient, and then in the recovery area, surgical resident writes observation because he or she has been taught if they're going to be in there less than two midnights, they should be in OBS. First of all, the billing level of care is outpatient, not observation. But most importantly, this resident, while all intentions were good, just made your life harder. Now you have to clarify the order. Note I said clarify. All too often, I have heard that the UR team, along with the physician providing guidance to cancel the order and write an order for inpatient. Please do not fall into this trap. You are working in a live medical record. The record needs to match the progression of the patient. Your concern now will be that the surgery happened the day before the inpatient order, right? On the UB04, the dates of services will correspond, even though the true inpatient date does not. This is the easier issue. Now let's move on to the complicated ones. Patient having surgery that has an inpatient order, but only an outpatient procedure. The question is raised multiple times in our organization. This was just a mistake. Can't we just cancel the inpatient order, make them outpatient? The answer is no. If that inpatient order was processed, the record needs to be defensible, meaning it needs to hold up in a court of law. I know how difficult it is to contact the PA, contact the UM committee, contact the physician, meet with the patient to explain condition code 44. I anticipate if you continue to have this issue with a surgeon that your chief of surgery should get involved and support you in changing that behavior. And please do not have your nurses just write a clarification order. Your UM plan should clearly state that nurses are unable to deny a level of care and need physician second level review. This is a lot of work in a short period of time fully understand that, but this way you will get full reimbursement for the outpatient procedure and not just Part B charges if you miss this and have to create a rebill. And the most difficult process are the medical patients that come in as a out inpatient and do not satisfy the two-midnight rule. 
an important piece I want you to take away from here is I did not say anything about screening criteria. CMS does not refer to screening criteria, either Interqual or MCG, in their rule. And while both screening tools have their merit in our world, CMS still abides by hospital level of care and not a screening tool. So ED or direct admission into inpatient, physician anticipated greater than two midnight, so the inpatient order. Upon review, there is nothing that should have triggered the anticipation of greater than two midnights, and the patient is ready to be sent back home the next day. It is not that this patient had a miraculous recovery. The patient truly did not meet any level of care ordered. A couple of our sites have had trouble catching these, so they end up in what we call our W-2 process or after the fact. But the fact of the matter is that we are doing ourselves and our patients a disservice by not finishing the process while they are still in the hospital. And please do not think that your UR staff can do this without second-level review. The proper process should include discussion with the attending physician, discussion with the physician advisor, who can also double as the physician on your UR committee, order written in the chart, and discussion with the patient, all prior to the patient leaving your facility. Thanks, Chuck, and back to you. Thanks, Mary Beth Pace, very much. That was Mary Beth Pace. Mary Beth Pace is the Vice President of Care at Trinity Health. And now it's the time for the results of today's Monitor Money Listener Survey. And once again, here is Alan Fink-Zamnick. So what issue most stands in the way of implementing programs and services to address the social determinants of health at your organization? No doubt the response to this is telling and will most likely change with the current coronavirus event. 37% said lack of reimbursement. 13% said inability to prove ROI from the effort. Only 8%, but still surprising that it was that high, said addressing them is viewed as outside of the organizational scope. But the most interesting response was D. There are other priorities to the organization. That came in at 40%, almost 41%. And it will be fascinating for folks to recognize what percentage of those people who are dealing with coronavirus are at risk for the social determinants and what that translates to in terms of isolation and managing the scope of this disease. Times will tell and moving onwards. Back to you, Chuck. Thanks, Alan, very much. We received a number of questions this morning. We're not going to have time to answer them, but we will make every effort to answer those questions offline in the next day. And that's going to be a wrap for this live edition of Monitor Monday. We thank you so very much for being with us today. Special thanks to our outstanding panelists, Matthew Albright, David Glazer, Dr. Ronald Hurst, Dennis Jones, Alan Fink-Samnick, whom you just heard, and Mary Beth Pace. And remember, you can listen to all the Monitor Monday podcasts anytime, anywhere, on any device, and it's free. You can listen to us on Stitcher, Apple, Spotify, and Google Play, and when you do, rate us. Give us a review. Until next Monday, I'm Chuck Buck, reporting for Monitor Monday and Rack Monitor. Have a great week, everybody. Monitor Monday is a presentation of Rack Monitor.